and I think about this all the time, if I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Episode 24, Whose Lie Is It Anyway? Witness Recap Trivia Game, Part 2. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. When we were halfway through our witness list, we played this game on the phone with Jamie to see if even we could remember the entire cast of characters. It was a lot of fun and a good way to break up the heaviness of these episodes. If you've been listening since, we just wrapped up season one. In over 24 episodes, we outlined why Jamie was pulled into a lineup in the first place, revealed all the jailhouse snitches, and presented the trial from start to finish. In season two, We will get into post-conviction proceedings, including the investigation, forensic evidence, and post-trial appeals. But for now, it's game time. We'll use this trivia game to test our own memories and to give our audience a review of the second half of Jamie's case. As your moderator, I have a list of the cast, and I will randomly ask Jamie, Tam, and Leslie to recite that person's significance in less than 30 seconds, before the timer buzzes. Let's see how they do. Coming to you live from Stateville Correctional Center. Today's contestants are Leslie, Tammy, and myself. Bruce, he's the Alex Trebek of our game. Let's go over the rules of the game. When your name is called, I will give you a name of a person in the case who has been previously discussed. You will then have 30 seconds to tell who that person is and how they fit into the case. Jamie, Tam, Leslie, are you ready? Yes. Um, I'm I'm ready. All right. Leslie, you are up first. Oh, great. Okay. Kevin Shaw. This is the one I didn't want. This guy, I think, was Jamie's cellmate. And then Jamie got out of custody before him and was doing good in his tree cutting service and then all of a sudden Kevin showed up on his doorstep with his dog and his kids and his wife in a truck and needed a place to stay and Jamie helped him and then I think soon after he got in trouble for a weapons charge and said Jamie had been making statements about the crime. That was 30 seconds. Bruce loves his buzzer. <laughs> Anybody want to add anything to Leslie's answer? Kevin Shaw was one that was a, a jailhouse uh, confession. He he did get in trouble, and he was in Florida with Jamie. I think, Jamie, you, you gave him a place to stay? Yeah, I, I gave him a place to stay, and the bottom line is he, he got a... He was facing a mandatory minimum 15 years to life of uh, federal time and he ended up getting seven years so he he got a, a minimum
eight years left off of his sentence, and and he was he's a career criminal dating back to the seventies. So he would have been would have been an act of God for him to get less than fifteen. So yeah, and we found out about the deal after we got the sentencing transcripts from Florida. Yeah, they 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 hit the deal, but he's he's been putting some some feelers out there that he may be willing to talk. So we're hoping. Okay, the next one is for Jamie. Jody Winkler. Jody Winkler was another jailhouse uh, informant who uh, came down to Florida and I gave him a place to stay. Tried to help him. He had a drug problem. Was trying to help him uh, get off of the drugs. And he is another one who got a super sweetheart deal in, in return for his, his testimony. You ended that with time to spare. Well, I'll add in, this is the guy who made up the at the beach in the rain concession in the car date with a pedicure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, his whole story was, was crazy. I mean, I, I lived in Florida for a long time, and I can tell you I never said, hey, it's, it's raining, let's go to the beach. I mean, that just never happened. Jamie was in under the buzzer on that one. All right, Tam, this next one's for you. Bill Gaddis. Ooh, the Reverend Bill Gaddis. He was the Reverend of the Pilgrim Church, so he says. He, he testified that he walked in at Billy Hendrix's house, and there were about four or five dudes in the back bedroom laying around on the bed crying because Jamie said that he had killed someone at the gas station that night. So he said that D- Jamie just looked at him and didn't deny it. So it was one of those confessions by omission, or I, I can't remember exactly how they say that. Nobody <laughs> corroborated <laughs> 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 yeah, right. No, it's called an admission of guilt by silence. When you, if someone makes a... If someone makes an, an, an allegation in front of you, they they say that failure to address it is an admission of guilt by silence because most people would would say, hey, wait, wait a minute, that never happened. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Which, I, I mean, it's 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 just, it's, it's bullshit. I mean, Bill Gaddis, that whole that whole story is just bullshit. They there are some police reports that that they showed him, supposedly they showed him a, a photo lineup, Tina Griffin and, and, and I think it was Dan Katz or Rick Marcus met him at a truck stop and was showing him and I believe his wife a, a photo lineup and that's the only mention of it. So I'm going to assume that he didn't identify me in the photo lineup or, or, or they would have said we showed him the photo lineup and Jamie was number six and he picked out number six. So we can, and, and, and I think you guys can touch on it better. I mean, we've dug up some some pretty pretty challenging information on the Reverend. That's a pretty good wrap up on him, I think. Okay, Jamie, this one's for you. Garen Bradford. Garen Bradford. Garen is is actually uh, um, Bill Gaddis's stepbrother, I guess. Uh, he's related to him, and Aaron was was someone who gave us some some, some really important.
important uh, background information on, on the Reverend as far as some of the things that he may have been uh, into and some of the things that may have been going on in his life that you know they possibly could have used as leverage to get him to you know cooperate with them. But uh, yeah, Karen's a member of uh, Bill Gaddis. Garen alluded to the fact on the stand that Bill Gaddis was a liar because of issues that were going on with his sister and her kids. And then come to find out later, Bill Gaddis had fled Illinois because of accusations of child abuse on, on those children, supposedly. And Garen wasn't able to get that out on the stand explicitly, but that's what we uncovered into that episode. Just backtrack a little bit. Bill Gaddis, the Reverend Bill Gaddis, nobody, nobody vouched for him. He had no corroboration for his story whatsoever, even though there was supposedly people all over the place in that house. Furthermore, the people like Garen Bradford was his, his brother, half-brother, step-brother, whatever. And there were multiple family members who said the guy lied all the time. If his mouth was moving, he was lying. If the guy said the sky was blue... I wouldn't believe him. <laughs> and that's to go to his trustworthiness because they propped him up as this man of the cloth who had never done anything wrong. But he had yeah, all of these... The way they portrayed him. You lie! You lie! And, and just, to add, just to add just a little bit is the fact that part of his testimony was that he, he had known me since we were kids. Since since uh, I was like five years old and, and, and uh, we used to go to church together and and I, it was one of the rare times that I was actually able to get Frank Pitzel to ask a question that I wanted him to ask. And, and he was asking him, what's his mom's name? What's, what's his dad's name? And he had no clue. He didn't know what my mom's name was, my dad's name. So, I mean, I, anybody that I've known since I was five years old, I know their whole family. And I know their moms and their dads and their brothers and their sisters. You, you, you would expect people to know that. And, and, and he didn't. He also said he was the gang leader of all your friends before he turned into a self-appointed reverend. So, <laughs> no, he said I was their self-appointed leader. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it's funny, and some people that are listening to this know Denny Hendrix and and those folks and how it was back then, and nobody had any. They didn't want to have anything to really do with him. He wasn't allowed over at Denny's house. I don't know. You said you were all afraid of him. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> all right. We're moving on to the next one. This one's for Tam. Mary Burns. Mary Burns was a correctional officer in McLean County while both Susan and Jamie were in county. And they came to her very late on before Jamie's trial and she testified that Jamie told her about the crime when he was in prison, but she came up with this last minute. Initially, she said two other people were with her and heard her, and then on the on the stand, she changed her testimony. <laughs> Did I do it? <laughs> you came in Incomplete. just under the buzzer. You're missing the big part, that she was having supposedly having an affair with one of the inmates she was guarding. And she was on Jamie's defense list first to say that he wasn't talking about 
the crime. And then I think the police told her she could get arrested for and go to jail herself for an improper relationship with somebody who was incarcerated. And then she flipped. I mean, and that's what we suspect. That's why I didn't right. say it. But that, I mean, that's I, what I really thinking. believe that that's probably what happened. Okay, Leslie. Darren Smart. This is one of the guys who Mary Burns said was present, another inmate, when Jamie supposedly was telling a story about running from the police that had to do with running away from the cops after he committed a crime or something. They're all apparently sitting around laughing, watching cops and telling old war stories, she said. She said he was there, and then uh, he was not there. He said he never had that conversation, and he did provide information after the trial that she was lying. I think that's it. These answers are way too fast. That one came in at under 21 seconds. We also got an interview with him. Yeah, and and, and just let me point out the fact that she, she came up with this story about a week before my trial, and Tina Griffin and one of the detectives went you know, to to interview Darren in in Pontiac Correctional Center, and he told them bullshit. It, it, it never happened, and and they sat on that information. They didn't turn it over. They knew that the witness who she was claiming was there for the the conversation was saying it didn't happen. And instead of turning that over to my attorneys, they just sat on it. Had they turned that over, I think it would have it would have raised the red flag for Pat and Frank for the way that her, her her whole story dramatically changed a week later. So just more, just another instance, you know, another example of them withholding, you know, pertinent information. Absolutely. Okay, I'm thinking these quick answers are just showing that we have a very well-prepared contestant group here, but I don't want to give you all big heads. Uh, no, I think it's because we forgot all the details. Me, personally, I think it's because nobody wants to be the one that you hit the buzzer on. That's what I think. I'm getting a little, you know, anxious. I want to use the buzzer. So, Jamie, you're up next. Here's a little pressure for you. Demetrius Kreit. Demetrius was one of the two guys that Mary Burns said was there when these conversations were taking place. And he... He gave us an affidavit and talked to us and said that it was Charles Reiner, one of the detectives, uh, that came to talk to him, and he flat out told him, no, it, it never happened. And on top of that, you know, he's serving three consecutive 20-year prison sentences, and, and they said that they would take one of those sentences and run it concurrent, effectively knocking 20 years off of his sentence. He would just testify that he heard that conversation taking place. And he told him, no, it never happened. So, guy has some integrity. Uh, and I never knew him. I, I never met the guy before. We were in the county jail together, so. You were supposed to get buzzered already, but my buzzer stopped working. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> I pressed the button like six times. I got nothing. So, Tam's going to have to edit. Tam's going to have to do an edit on this one. That's, uh... But that's pretty much it on, on Demetrius. They were going to knock 20 years off his sentence, and, and he didn't go for it. So I think that says a lot. Yeah. It certainly does. Tam, you're up next. Yeah. Julie Knight. 
Julie Knight did not testify in, in Jamie's trial, but she did testify in Susan's trial and the grand jury. And she testified that Susan told her all of these times, hundreds of times, that she was the one driving the car in the crime. Her stories changed over time, as did many of them. But her relevance, I guess, is, is that she was mentioned by another witness who did testify that they were present at a bar. <laughs> when Tammy Snow said that Jamie did it. Okay, Jamie. Bridget Logston. Bridget Logston, I never met her before. I don't know her. Uh, But she was uh, a girl who testified that she overheard my my ex-wife, Tammy, telling someone else that she knew that I'd committed the crime. and, and, And she's she said that she overheard her telling Julie Knight and this other girl that, that, that I committed the crime, and I, I'd never met her before. We, we found out later on that she was in some trouble at the time uh, that all this was going on, and we tried to do some digging to see exactly what was going on. I figure she's just another person who got some sort of a deal uh, in return for the testimony. But... I'll just add that Julie was such a flippant person and couldn't be relied on for Jamie's trial to give any uh, credible testimony. So they got her friend Bridget instead. And that's why she showed up to say that she overheard a conversation. That way they didn't have to bring Julie in to explain how she recently lost her kids to DCF or was arguing with her brother and her parents and all those people and how she got wound up in it. That was her ex-friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Bridget, when she got on the stand. <laughs> That's my ex-friend. I think she was only 24. Bye. Definitely a good point to add. Part of the pressure they used on her to get her to testify in Susan Charles. So. Okay, Leslie, you're up. Shane Talon. Shane Talon is Julie Knight's brother who hates her guts. And he, for some reason, when he was interviewed originally about this case, he said he didn't recall Julie ever saying that she had knowledge of this crime. And then when it went to trial, all of a sudden, I think he did testify in one of the trials or the grand jury that actually she did tell him some stuff. He was very elusive and he kind of flipped sides. But he didn't really think that he did much damage because he never actually went to Jamie's trial. And then he did an interview for us and just totally said that he thinks his sister is a terrible person. Not bad. Very good. Jamie, Aaron Todd Fox. I really don't know Todd Fox. I, I mean, I, I might have met him a couple of times, if, but I, I, I really, I really don't remember him. I, for the best of my my knowledge, I mean, I, I, I guess he was Julie Knight's uh, ex-boyfriend, and he just pretty much testified and came forward and, and just pretty much said that Julie was just full of full of it, that, that everything she was saying was was about uh, Susan was just was just a lie. He, she, he said she was very tight-lipped. Yeah, she was very tight-lipped, and she was in some kind of in cahoots with her brother and her father about it. 
Yeah, I, I really, I don't know, Todd. I, if I met him, I, I sure don't remember, but we appreciate the fact that he came forward with his information. That's the type of people that we need. It, it was, that a, was an easy one. It was a strange thing, right? Because you had, it was like a family affair in the grand jury because you had the mother, Julie, Julie, Julie Knight testified, Shane Talon testified, brother and sister, and then their mother, Paula, testified as well. So it was just a very weird, uh, weird. Yeah, well, we proceeding. were we were glad that Todd Foss came forward and, and and told what he knew about it because, like I said, those those are the type of people that that we need to come forward with intimate details of perhaps people themselves, uh, like Julie. And he's the one that said they were trying to intimidate her and and about her kids and stuff, wasn't he? Yeah. Okay, Leslie, this one has to go to you. Tina Griffin. Ooh, Fangs. I think that's what Jamie likes to call her. She is the prosecutor who I often dub in the voice for, who orchestrated a lot of this and was very poetic and Shakespearean and talked about all this web of lies. She's the one who put it all together. And then after she interviewed everybody on the stand she gave her closing arguments and then basically summarized it in her own words with a bunch of extra stuff thrown in so she kind of muddled everything up she was really vicious she knew what she was doing and then she also said jamie she's the one who said jamie couldn't be rehabilitated and he deserved life not 30 years for a crime he did not even commit just under the buzzer 28 seconds and she i'd like to add i don't think she got any career accolades for this big thing that she did with Jamie. I think that she had to go to a different county. She never became a judge there. So Charles Renard, her boss, after Jamie got convicted, was appointed to a judgeship, an associate judge. And he backed Tina Griffin to run for state's attorney in McLean County, and she lost. And she immediately got a position in Shiler County which was where Jamie's, when he successfully got his case moved because of the bias in McLean County, she was the state's attorney in, in Shiler County. Yeah, imagine that. I'm able to get my case moved out of McLean County because of the potential for bias. And of all the counties uh, in the state of Illinois that they could have moved my case to, it just coincidentally got moved to Shiler County where Tina Griffin happened to be the state attorney. I mean, really? What are the chances of that? So, the the corruption, the appearance of corruption, it it runs pretty, pretty deep. She knew Bruce Rowland was lying. She knew Ed Hammond was lying. She, she knew of all the, the times they had they had met with, with Danny Martinez and didn't, didn't turn that information over and, and, and how knowing that would have affected the story that she put out to the jury. She, she knew about the deals. She, she was the, she was probably the, the worst actor in, in, in the whole case. I mean, Charles Ryan was the state attorney. Nothing gets done without his approval. So. And your assessment uh, of Tina Griffin though, for sure. She hid evidence, yeah. and she knowingly put perjured witnesses on the stand. That's what she, she did. knew that 
Russell Thomas had testified in 1991 to a, to a grand jury about the interview that they had with me uh, in April of 91. And, and, and she knew that he attributed all those statements to a different case, which I, I got indicted for. And then she brought him back in again uh, in 1999-2000 and got him to testify again. But this time he's testifying that the statements were made about the, the homicide at the Clark gas station. So it's... it's I think that's a good assessment. Tam, let's elaborate a little bit more on what you just said with the next name on the list. Charles Renard. Renard. So Charles Renard was the state's attorney. He and, and Tina Griffin was his first first assistant state's attorney so she was right there right there with them they both prosecuted this case although tina griffin did a lot of the vocal stuff charles renard was very involved in this case and the same things he knew about all of the same things that jamie pointed to that tina griffin knew about and again after this conviction he was promoted to associate judge and also back tina griffin for uh, state's attorney, but she lost. Probably maybe helped her get that job over in Schuyler County, but they were both just terrible. And there's other cases. There's other cases that they prosecuted that have already been overturned because of malicious prosecution in part. It's pretty safe to say that Griffin and Renard were working hand in hand in all this corruption. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they've got three murder cases that have been reversed, and the three that were reversed were represented by exoneration projects. You've got my case, you've got Mark McNeil's case. Both of us are represented by exoneration projects. And and in the case of Ed Hammond, Tina Griffin was reaching out to the, the federal prosecutor's office behind the scenes to get him a deal. So, right. you know, that collusion is something. She, she was using a federal prosecutor that used to work in the McLean County State Attorney's Office to uh, work a deal for him before it even been the corruption run. So it's all out in the open and it's pretty obvious. The fuck? Jamie, the next name on the list, it's going to you. It's Tara Thompson. Tara Thompson is, is my attorney at, at the Exoneration Project. She's, 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 been, she's been working on my case for almost 10 years now. And she took my case at a time that I was working pro se, and I had no idea uh, what I what I was doing. I mean, I, I had a, a little bit of an idea, but I, there was a time I sent I sent a, a letter to every criminal defense attorney in the state of Illinois that I could find a, an address for, and I sent her one, and and uh, she looked at the post conviction petition that I, I filed uh, on my own, and, and, and she took the case and. And she's been working it ever since. So we got a court date on March 29th. So. Well, Tam, you're next up with Maureen Kevin. Maureen Kevin was Jamie's when he, he was under the death penalty. Uh, the death penalty was on the table. She was his mitigation specialist and she had worked with Frank Pitzel closely, John Hanlon, I believe she worked with him, but she she told us, and we just had a recent interview with her, that she was very, Frank was not doing his job 
and that Riley wasn't doing their jobs efficiently, that she could smell alcohol. There were incidences where they could, she could smell alcohol on his breath. One telling thing was that <clears throat> Frank Pitzel actually delayed the sentencing hearing just to get Maureen Kevin, get with her and get the people up there. And Maureen Kevin recently told us that he never, she never even talked to him, that, that he did not reach out to her or her office and that she would have done that because we know he only had two witnesses to stand up for him in that sentencing hearing. But she's great. She's fun and interesting and she's very Chicago. She drove down from Chicago every Thursday for probably damn near a year to come in come in and, and sit there and, and, and talk with me. She's uh, the one person who really held my hand through the whole thing from the point that she came on, even after the death penalty trial assistance people were taken off the case. She came down there on her own dime, basically, to show her support to me, and I'll never be able to express to her uh, what that actually meant to me. You go, girl. Okay, let's do the next one. Leslie Donald Bernardi. That's the judge. So when we were talking about all these motions, he is the judge who heard that Jamie wanted to get rid of his awful lawyers and that his lawyers said they didn't think they could represent him fairly and he still allowed it and then he heard a ton of testimony almost from Tina Griffin herself during sentencing and he sided with her and he's the one who said during sentencing that Jamie cannot be rehabilitated and deserves life in prison and he stayed on the case I believe I've seen him in the appeals after so wish he went away a long time ago and I want to add that he also sat all the way through Susan's, he presided over Susan Clickholm's trial, so he knew of this evidence. And he also signed wiretap orders that we were unaware of for the state to continue their investigation. Those were signed by, by him, and none of those ever made it into court because... He was the sentencing judge for Jody Winkler. We, we, we uncovered a police report that says that the, the court received evidence in aggravation and mitigation prior to the sentencing, which means the state's attorney and the defense attorney got with the judge. Because when you, when you listen to the sentencing transcript, Winkler's lawyer doesn't put any evidence of mitigation up. So the deal was done. And, and Bernardi knew it. We got to get this last one in. This one's for Jamie. Kurt Lovelace. Oh, Kurt Lovelace. Kurt Lovelace is a friend of ours from the Justice Initiative. He was a prosecutor. He he was charged himself with some serious uh, <laughs> serious charges. He ended up going to trial. John Lovey and Tara Thompson represented him and, and got him a not guilty verdict. And and he, he's now a defense attorney who is uh, trying to do his own justice initiative uh, program and, and, and help wrongfully convicted people out. He's good people, him and his wife, Christine. Great people. Good friends. You have one minute left. <laughs> I beat the buzzer. <laughs> yeah, and you did good. You, we got everybody You beat the in. buzzer. 
<laughs> I wanted to talk, mention Christine, Christine Lovelace too. They're they're partners in crime. Yeah, they're great. They're great, <laughs> great people. I, they they've been down here to visit me a few times, and and the fact that he's you know dealing on the defense side of things now, trying to he understands now what it is. I think what it is that we we go through, and uh, the fact that he's he's willing to try to to give back and help us out, man. That's that's unbelievable. He could probably make more money. Uh, as a prosecutor or you know they just had a great case where they were successful uh, this past couple weeks they've gotten yeah. three not guilties in a row woohoo yeah that's that's wonderful that's that's awesome thank I'm... you for using Securus goodbye <laughs> there goes well, Jamie the ultimate buzzer hey we got him in yeah, one day. Thank you so much for listening to Season 1 of Snow Files, the story of Jamie's trial. We have sincerely enjoyed and appreciate your patronage, support, and engagement in the conversation about Jamie's wrongful conviction. A special thanks to transcriptionists Pamela Wesby, Melinda Wargacki, Kathy McElhaney, Kaywood Yomnick, and Ginger Fiola. Jamie, Bruce, Leslie, and I are very proud of the body of work we've created. It took some time, but it's good quality, informative, and accurate. We've learned so much this past year, and we can't wait to ramp up for Season 2 in May. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There's a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. In the early morning hours of April 1st, 1991, while police were canvassing the neighborhood for witnesses, crime scene technicians combed the Clark Station for fingerprints, blood, bullets, and any other trace of physical evidence that might lead to the murderer of Bill Little. To this day, that physical evidence has not been tested. In Season 2, we will take a deep dive into the forensics evidence, interview private detectives who have worked on the case, and delve into the post-conviction investigation, new evidence, and legal pleadings. That's next season on Snow Files.